0: And if you will also take your worship folders and open those, and there will be a folded uh, white sheet of paper in there, and that is our sermon outline for this morning. The title of the sermon is "Jesus, the Hope of God's People." As we think about Christmas and the season that we are in, it's so incredible to me that we come to the book of, of Malachi, and it's an Old Testament book. It's actually it's the last book of the Old Testament before we will come to the New Testament. It's perfectly appropriate that we conclude our Minor Prophet series and then also the Sunday before Christmas with the book of Malachi, but it is no stretch, it is no stretch at all to say that Jesus has always been the hope of God's people and as we look at the book of Malachi, we will see Jesus, Jesus, Jesus throughout, throughout the book of Malachi. Uh, As we conclude our our series of the Minor Prophets, we'll have several times throughout the sermon today where I just try to rehash and reemphasize some of the things that we've been studying in the Minor Prophets. But we do need to be reminded that the the Minor Prophets are not minor because they were less important in their day. the minor prophets are minor prophets because their books are shorter compared to major prophets. Prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. These are much bigger books. But the minor prophets, they weren't underage. They weren't minors. They weren't shorter than the, the major prophets, hobbits, anything like that. They're, they're, they're just minor prophets because the books are shorter. Why are these messages so important? These The minor prophets were written thousands of years ago. Why do we need to be taking such time to look at the minor prophets just in general of the the entire series that we've been going through and I will say you realize this is my first sermon series for those of you who don't know and I don't know if I should admit that or not but on your first sermon series I hope that it's when you realize the things that you should have done the first sermon and so I'm doing that on the last sermon in the minor prophets but why, why are these messages so important? First of all because they're in God's word. All of God's word is inspired, is beneficial, is profitable for teaching. And so, first of all, because they're in God's word. If we believe that it's inspired, then it doesn't matter how difficult the book may be or how foreign it may sound to us, it's important and it's helpful for us. Secondly, it helps us see blind spots. It helps us see blind spots. You see, the people in the minor prophets, their worship had become more based on habit than heart. And they didn't realize this, and so these prophets come, and they speak to them attempting to expose their hypocrisy and their complacency. We have blind spots as well. Uh, John Piper, he's an expert on a theologian called, uh, jo- named Jonathan Edwards. A lot of you have heard of him. Jonathan Edwards, Why? Well, the only thing you may know about him is the sermon, Sinners in the hang- Hands of an Angry God, he's, he's actually one of the most best theologians that America has ever produced. There's much more to him than just uh, this sermon Sinners in the hands of an angry God, while it's an incredible sermon as you, as you read it through. But John Piper was asked about Jonathan Edwards because Jonathan Edwards actually had slaves. And this seems crazy to us. We can't see that this man who worshipped God, who loved God with his whole heart and preached the word with his whole heart, why would he have slaves? This seems absolutely just ridiculous to us. But John Piper said, all of us have blind spots. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what will people 200 years from now say about us? What were our blind spots? Will they talk about all our money? Will they talk about our our large houses, our fancy cars? What will they say? I I don't know what they'll say, but this is a question we need to ask ourselves. Because as we, we look at the minor prophets, we see that these people had blind spots. We look in history and Christians who came before they had blind spots. We have blind spots. And as we go through the word and we search it, our blind spots should be exposed. They began to ignore the needs of people in their own communities. You hear throughout the minor prophets, injustice, injustice. They're being judged because of their injustice. And we'll talk about this in the book of Malachi One of the things that I really want to point out here is that uh, Southern Baptists in particular and in our day have a lot of times been resistant to the term injustice because it went along with liberalism a lot of times, especially in the 60s and 70s. Those who talked about injustice brought up a a thing called the social gospel and they started talking less about uh, the crucifixion and, and substitutionary atonement and need for forgiveness of our sins, personal sins, and talk more about how Jesus was just supposed to change society and so because of this somewhat extreme uh, stance that liberals took uh, we have taken another extreme and we've become resistant to the term injustice but as we look at Malachi as we look at through the minor prophets and then as we look at Jesus we see that God is very passionate about injustice and God's people are constantly judged because of injustice So this is another blind spot for them. They ignored the needs of people in their own communities. And then the last reason that these books are so important that we will talk about today is Jesus has been and always will be the hope of God's people. The minor prophets just keep shouting it to us that there is one who is coming to save. He will save. And this is Jesus. So let's take a look at the message of Malachi. Malachi comes to us in approximately 460 B.C., this is after the temple has been rebuilt. As you see at the in the first verse we'll see that the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now at the top of your notes I have there that Malachi means my messenger. And so it's very possible that the book of Malachi is titled, This Malachi, My Messenger, not necessarily because this person's name was my messenger, but it was just, This is a messenger of the Lord. And so whether this person's name was uh, my messenger, we don't know for sure. But the point is, is that this one comes with a word from the Lord, he is the messenger of the Lord. The temple's been rebuilt, but the people are still discouraged because Jerusalem is not what it used to be. It's not what it was in Solomon's day. The temple is not glorious in Jerusalem, and these areas do not reign over other nations, but there's still the threat of other nations coming in to destroy them. And so in some sense, God's people feel like, has God kept his promises to us? Is he going to be faithful to us? But what we see is that instead of responding with somewhat of a humility, they seem to be responding with arrogance towards God. And even some of the same ways of disobedience in which they suffered for in the past. And so their response to what's going on around them and the the, the lack of fulfillment of, of patience that they're being forced into, their response instead of patience is arrogance. Charging God with injustice. So this is what we'll see in the book of Malachi. I have, at the very beginning, a a structure for the book of of Malachi. This is something, if you just read through the book, you can see this. It's organized with six disputation speeches. Six disputation speeches. The Lord comes and says, you say this against me. And then they'll ask, well, well God, why, do we, you know, why does this happen? And then it's this kind of conversation that goes on, this disputation. So there are six of these. But what we're going to do this morning for time's sake and hopefully organization to help us make it simpler is we're, these are organized into two apiece in each point. And so if you'll look at the first point there in your notes you'll see that the third and fourth disputation speeches go together. That first point, relationship to God, involves how we treat others. We're going to go ahead and just review what this is going to be about. The second and fifth disputation speeches go together as well. Relationship to God involves what we do with ourselves. And then the third point, relationship to God, involves how we approach Him. And that is the first and sixth disputation speech. And so this is how we're going to walk through it this morning. As we begin we're going to look at these central disputation speeches. Again, this is the third and fourth disputation speech, so we're not going to start at the very beginning of the book as we would normally do, but we'll look at chapter 2, verses 10, through chapter 3, verse 5. So as we begin this morning, would you stand with me, and we'll read these first uh, sections together. Chapter 2, verse 10, through chapter 3, verse 5. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tenths of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who could stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years." Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You may be seated. God, I pray this morning that your spirit would be with us to clarify your word. Lord, the word that you gave to your people years and years ago, that you would help us to see how it applies to us today, Father. the message for us today, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. We thank you, God, for your great kindness and forgiveness to us in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The first thing we see in these, the third and fourth dispute is a relationship to God involves how we treat others. Relationship to God involves how we treat others. Now let's look where this begins in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? What we first see is that sin has crept in to the body, the covenant people of Israel. And when sin kept in, they began to hurt one another. It wasn't that just one individual sinned, or some individual sinned, but they sinned, and then it divided the entire covenant community. And so this is why it says, have we all not one father? It's as if we're here together, and we, being God's children, if we accepted Christ, all have one father and one God. And so they together are saying, we're a family. Has not one God created us? Then why are we faithless to one another? Why are we hurting one another? This is the question they are being presented with. God's people, the covenant people, are hurting each other with their sins. And so as we can immediately apply this to our circumstances, to where we are in history, Jesus is the hope of every church. Jesus is the hope of every church. James chapter 4 verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You see, when our passions, when we don't seek to keep them down, to guard against them, We will fight among us. Your disobedience, every individual in here, your disobedience doesn't just affect you. It affects all of us and it divides our body. You see, what was happening in this period is they had begun to intermarry with other religions, women of other religions, daughters of other nations. They had begun to serve these other gods. And when they did this, they committed evil against their own covenant nation. And so this is what happens, practically speaking, when we here seek sin. We divide each other. Colossians 3, chapter 12 through 13. This, right before these verses, it says, Christ is all and in all. And then in light of this, Paul says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Friends, in this world, we will experience trials and temptations. And the only way for us as a body to survive together, to be a healthy community of faith, is if we trust and rely on Christ. I think this is very pertinent to our body. We are a family. It's not just your immediate family. It's God's people as a family. This is why at Crosspoint, we have a covenant so that when you become a member here, you agree to the covenant. Listen, you're not just coming in and then you can go out whenever you want. Families don't break up unless they talk about it first. We have many in our midst who will come here and then something happens and they they're, they're feel like they're being served right or something like that. And then they just walk out. That's not what families do. The covenant body of Christ is bigger than that. It's more important than that. And so if you have problems in this body, your responsibility is to come here, to share with us, to live life with us. This is what the people of God were not doing in Malachi, and it was dividing them. And so the first thing we see is in relationship to God involving how we treat others is that we as a body are to be together. We're to operate together. We're to love one another. We're to guard against our passions that would divide one another. We're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and we're to forgive one another. This is the corporate implication of what's going on here. But there's also a very much more personal implication Look at these next verses, verses 13 through 16. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the Lord God seeking? Godly offspring. As we said, part of their sin is they began to intermarry. They began to marry with women of other nations who served other gods. From the beginning of the law, the Lord said this to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. You shall not intermarry with them, meaning foreign nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Listen to why God says this. He's very clear. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The reason God doesn't want believers to marry unbelievers is because they would turn them away to serve other gods. Now, what's happened here is these people have been married and they divorce their wives and go and marry the women of another faith, turning to these other gods. The clearest picture, this is so important because the clearest picture God has given in all the earth of his relationship to his people is a man and woman's relationship in marriage. This is why throughout the scriptures, when God talks about his people deserting him, he says it's adultery. It's the breaking, not just of some legal union, it's the breaking of a covenant bond. Wife, husband, I hope you take this so to heart your marriage your marriage is the picture is a picture of Christ's love for the church Ephesians chapter 5 verse 32 this mystery is profound referring to marriage and i'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church if i look at your marriage can i see Christ and the church of course all of us have faults all of us have struggles but if we look at your marriage how is it how is it looking Is it a great picture of Christ in the church? Husbands, are you laying down your lives for your wife? It's not not perfection, but are you seeking after it? Are you loving her well? Are you striving to do this with your whole heart, making this your priority, that you be the faithful covenant partner with your wife? It's important as God's people that we recognize, even while our culture allows us to have no-fault divorces, There's no such thing being a member of God's people. Marriage is not just a legal union. It's a covenant bond. This is what God says. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? This is a spiritual union. When you come together with your wife, you share one another. You literally become one. In a spiritual sense, you're sharing one another. When you break that... What you're saying is that God is not faithful to his people. This is one of the main, I'm spending time here because this is one of the main emphases of the entire book of Malachi. That you be faithful in marriage, because this is a picture of God and his people. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the same command is given. God is saying, don't intermarry with unbelievers. It says in this verse, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, to be fair to this passage of Scripture, it it applies beyond just marriage. It applies to all inappropriate relationships with unbelievers. The wisdom of God is, he who walks with the wise grows in wisdom. And so why, if Christ is your life, would you go and marry someone who doesn't share your devotion to Christ? It is absolutely foolish. We acknowledge this wisdom in every other area of life. If I want to be good at something, I want to team up with someone who's good at that and I want to learn from them. It's the same wisdom you should seek young people when you're seeking a spouse. Do you want to love God? Then find a spouse that loves God and will help you love God. Don't settle in this. If Christ is Lord, this will be a major priority in your life. So, relationship with God involves how we treat others. These people, these men especially, were treating their wives brutally. And this is why it says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. When this man divorced his wife and simply left her for another woman, this woman was left helpless. She would have no economic way of of surviving. And so the man was just, literally in the text it says hating her. Hating her. And so this is all the more challenged. Men and women, love your spouse. Love your spouse. If there's division between you at any time, you seek reconciliation. Always. This is what God does for his church. He always forgives, always seeks reconciliation. The next way we see this relationship with others playing out is injustice. The injustice we talked about a moments, ago, moments ago in the introduction. This is in uh, chapter 3, verse 5. He would draw near for judgment, be a swift, swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against the, those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God would come and he would judge. But what's the main hope for injustice? We see these, this in these verses in chapter 3. God says right after these people are accusing him and saying, where is the God of justice? God says this. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. These verses, and we'll see it more in chapter 4, are exactly what's said about John the Baptist. He is the one, he is the messenger who comes and he prepares the way before him. Him now. Look, the subjects change. It says he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So there's a messenger who comes, and when this messenger comes to prepare the way, immediately after there is one. God says, "I will appear in the temple." This is going along with much of what we have seen in the minor prophets that when God comes, He comes suddenly. It comes suddenly. I gave you the illustration several sermons back that when I was deer hunting, Dad would always you know, tell me the deer can come out at any time. And so anyway, I went to sleep and then I woke up and the deer was there all of a sudden. And so it, it comes suddenly. While it feels like it takes forever, it, when it comes, it's here. And so Christ, when he came, he was not here. And then all of a sudden, as a baby, he's here. He's here. And so God, and Christ goes to the temple. And so God sends his messenger, and then the Lord whom you seek, he comes to his temple. He's the messenger of the covenant. And then it says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he, is a, when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and will purify the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. But as we go on, one of the things that we need to notice about this passage as it talks about the messianic person who will come is while it's good and while it's good for God's people and they rejoice, He comes and there are some who will not be able to stand at His coming. You see, Christ comes as Savior, but He also comes as Judge. As it says in John 3, those who do not believe are condemned already. And so while at this time of year we should rejoice, it should also be a warning to us, a stern warning. Are you believing? Are you trusting in the Lord? Do you know Him? Have you committed yourself to His salvation? Surrendered to it? This is how God heals injustice. Jesus is the hope for injustice. He sends His Son. And in Luke 4, 18-19, Jesus says this, quoting Isaiah. He, being God, has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is exactly what God said he would do, that he would come and that he would take care of all injustice. Do you feel like you have suffered some injustice at the hand of someone? Do you feel like some injustice in your life has not been taken care of? Know that Jesus comes and He heals all injustice. That when He comes, all evil will be done away with and perfection will be here. And But for now, as you wait, if you feel like you've suffered some injustice, will you hope in the Lord? Will you trust that Christ has suffered and that He suffered so that you might be relieved from all oppression? That you might experience his freedom and his grace. I pray that you trust that Jesus. He is the hope for all injustice. No matter how small your circumstances may seem. Or how great it may seem. He is the hope for all of it. For all the poor. For all the oppressed. No matter what you're experiencing. Jesus is the hope. So relationship to God involves how we treat others. This is uh, particularly applicable to marriage and to how we're interacting with people, how we're loving people. Are we being resources? Are we not showing justice towards people? This God will judge. The next thing we see is a relationship to God involves what we do with ourselves. Not just our relationships with others, but also with ourselves. We're going to look at the second and fifth disputes here, beginning with... Chapter 1. Chapter 1. We're going to read verses 6 through 8 and then verse 14. As we said earlier, the temple has been rebuilt in Jerusalem, and so the sacrificial system has been put back in place. And so what we're going to see here is that the sacrificial system has been brought, put back in place, but the people are not being faithful to all that God commanded regarding this sacrificial system. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I, then I am a father, where is my honor? Present that that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Skip down with me to verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. You see, while God's people had access to their best offerings, they had their, their first of the flock that they could have offered to the Lord. Instead, they were offering what was less. They were offering their lame or their blind animals, and they were saying, this will be sufficient to the Lord. I'll, just, I'll, I'll sacrifice this. But God says, I am a great king says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. You see, God's nature demands that we give him our best. God is king over all. He will be worshipped by all. And so simply by who he is, he demands all that we are. He demands our very best. And the problem is that God's people were not giving him their best. Jesus teaches us to give our best. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. While for these people it was literal sacrifices, animal sacrifices. This is what Paul says. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. In other translations it will say, in view of God's mercies. God's mercies are his sacrifice for our sins in Christ Jesus So in light of what God's done for us in Jesus, forgiven our sins, clothed us in righteousness, present your bodies as a sacrifice, holy, alive, and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable service. Notice that word, literally, reasonable. Reasonable service. The only thing you can do that's reasonable in light of what God has done for you is give him your entire life. Lay down your entire life and say, God, all I am is yours. Whatever you want me to do, it's all yours. Every day, every minute of my life, I'm devoted to you. Don't you see? God's given you his only son. He's forgiven your sins. He's bought back your life so that you don't have to just suffer the wrath for your sin. And so in light of all he's done for you, the only reasonable thing you can do is lay down your life and say, all I am is yours. Is there any way that you're holding back in this? Are you giving God your best, everything that you are? Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. This is written to slaves, by the way. And Paul is challenging them, even in light of the situation you're in that may seem awful. He says, whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. For the Israelites, they were offering bad sacrifices in their worship. Paul says in chapter 12, 1 of Romans, Your life is your worship. Everything you do with your life is your worship. So, is there anything you're just holding back on? You're saying, Oh, I can slack on this. It's not a big deal. Your life is God's, you represent God. You can't slack. Work heartily at all you do as if for the Lord and not for men. Jesus teaches us to do our best. It's important in our relationship with God, what we do with ourselves. Are you giving your best? Jesus also teaches us to give our all. Look at chapter 3. Again, this is the next disputation in this couple. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. And this is our tithing speech. I was really excited about this one. Chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. God says in verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Notice the first thing that God reminds us people of is that his character never changes. He is always holding out this offer, this invitation. Turn to me. All you have to do is turn to me and I will forgive. This is his character. It is one of grace and kindness. Are you continuing in sin? The invitation is always out. Turn to Christ. He will forgive. Verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. The law in Israel is that they give their first fruits of the Lord from their produce to the temple and to those who take care of the temple, to the Levites. It was to keep the temple going. It was to provide for those who were working in God's service. But the Israelites had decided not to do this, that they didn't have to give these first fruits to the Lord. One author says this about the situation. The entire world belonged to God and his people were supposed to acknowledge his ownership through their giving and trust in his continual provision. Their sacrifices and tithes then were what God used to teach them to worship him with their whole selves. You see, God owned everything. And he says, give to me of your first fruits. The first things that you produce, devote to me. And it's a matter of trust. You devote to me, I will provide for you. I will give you all that you need. Now, as we look at this passage, and this passage is used often in in tithing sermons in different places, I'm sure. But we need to take the context into consideration. This is a covenant mandate, and it was part of the the law. God says, if you do this, I will bless you. But if we apply this in the same way, in the, new, in the exact same way, thinking uh, all we have to do is give our money and then God's just going to give us a lot more money. You see, that's what prosperity preachers do. That's not the correct application of the passage. The rule of the New Testament is generosity. It's just like what we saw in Romans. It's in light of God's mercies and all he's poured out for you in Christ Jesus, give to him, trust him, give everything to him. You'll, this is why you hear many encourage though, uh, preachers will encourage a base of 10 percent, and then from there on, you just you trust the Lord and you might even give more. But it's not necessarily that God's going to pour out more money on you. It's in view of all that He's done you give. Here's what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 verse 20, 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. This is a quotation from Jesus. But in the New Testament, it's not necessarily, sometimes maybe God will pour out and entrust us with more money and more material possessions. But in the New Testament, it's not so much just material possessions as it is building treasures in heaven. That our reward is not here, but it is above. It's in the life after. And so we give here because God has given so graciously to us and because we know that there are many in need. We know that there are many who need to know Christ. Philippians, Paul says it this way in chapter 4, verse 19, the the Philippian church had given abundantly to Paul on his missionary journey to take care of him, to help him in spreading the gospel. And he says this, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. As you give, do you seek that the Lord prov- would provide for you through His riches in Christ Jesus? You see, the riches of Christ Jesus are peace. They're the fruit of the Spirit. They're love, their hope, and eternal life. Those are the riches in Christ Jesus. It's not just money. And so as you give, and I do challenge you, give to his kingdom. Give to the growth of his kingdom. But do you trust that it's not just money that he'll pour out on you? It may not even be money. It may be more difficult. But his riches in Christ Jesus are far greater than any money you could have. It's communion with brothers and sisters all across the world that you're helping to feed that might not have food otherwise. It's the church that may not grow otherwise, that needs help, that's being persecuted. It's provision for their needs. This is riches enough that you participate in his kingdom in this way. So as you look at this passage, make sure you put it in context and make sure you know what God is saying. He will provide for you. He will richly bless you. But it may be in a way that you wouldn't expect. The last point, relationship to God involves how we approach him. We've seen that relationship to God involves how we treat others, our relationship with others. Relationship to God involves what we do with ourselves. We give our best and we give our all. But relationship to God also involves how we approach Him, how we come to Him and think about who He is. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Chapter two chapter one verses two through five I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, and Esau I have hated. I thought this would be a great discussion for Christmas time. the first thing I want us to see is that as we come to God, we should seek understanding of God. We should seek understanding of God. This is a very difficult passage, and I'm not going to say that I can make sense of it. There are some people who would avoid this passage, like the plague. Some of you are already nervous in your seats and don't want to talk about it. But it needs to be talked about. There was a... A pastor named George Buttrick, he was a Presbyterian pastor in the 20s through the 50s, and one week had been off on a speaking engagement, and he was flying back to New York City. On the plane, uh, he had a pad and a pencil, and he was making some notes for the next Sunday sermon, and the man next to him, he was eyeing him uh, cu- with curiosity. Finally, the, the curiosity got the best of him, and so he said to Buttrick, I hate to disturb you, you're obviously working hard on something, but what in the world are you working on? He says, oh, I'm a Presbyterian minister, said Buttrick. I'm working on my sermon for Sunday. Oh, religion, said the man. I don't like to get caught up in the ins and outs and complexities of religion. I like to keep it simple. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule, that's my religion. I see, said Buttrick. And what do you do? I'm an astronomer. I teach at the university. Oh, yes, said Buttrick. Astronomy. Well... I don't like to get caught up in the ins and outs and the complexities of astronomy. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, that's my astronomy. We do need to think through the deep things of God, even when they're difficult. We don't need to ignore passages just because they're difficult. As we come to God, we should seek understanding of God How have you loved us, God? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. You see, God chose Israel. God chose Jacob. And what this means is that Jacob was a continuous, he had a continuous promise, and he had a continuous priority towards his relationship with Jacob. That if anyone came to try to destroy Jacob, God was on Jacob's side. It was a covenant promise with Jacob that he would not forsake no matter what. God was devoted to him. And so if you look at the history of the Bible, if you look at the story of Edom, when is Edom destroyed? It's when they begin to assault Israel. You see, when God chooses, he takes care of his people. And this, in this sense, this should be a comfort to you. Are you in relationship to Christ? Are you in relationship with Him? Then He will preserve and He will protect you no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. His love for Israel was a continuous promise and priority. But also, he was over the whole earth. Look at verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God is assuring his people that while Edom is outside of Israel, it's not within that nation necessarily. It doesn't ma- If Edom tries to do anything, God will destroy that nation. Israel is, in a sense, doubting God's power. God, can you take care of us? We're this measly little nation. Can you take care of us? And God says, you shall see and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. We can do the same thing in our small lives. God, are you taking care of everyone? I mean, this is a big world, 7 billion people. There are many people suffering. God, can you take care of everyone? Listen, you shall see, great is the Lord in all the earth. We shall see this as well. Paul uses the same passage in Romans 9, and he uses it to say that God is sovereign and that all salvation is by grace, not by any merit or work of one. Only God saves, and he saves totally, and he saves sovereignly. So Jacob, he's loved, but Esau, he's hated. This means he preserves those that he saves. And in all of it, God gets glory. Read Romans 9. Even hardening the heart of Pharaoh, God gets glory. Not saving Esau, God gets glory. And so all of this, we seek understanding. It is a mystery to us in a sense, but what we see is that God preserves those that he chooses, and that he gets glory in all of it. And for us, the another implication Jesus is how we know God loves us Israel is saying how do we know you love us God Jesus is how we know he loves us because Romans 12 10 13 says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved don't sit there and question or am I one of the ones that God chose do you know Jesus have you trusted in Jesus? The invitation is always out. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is for you. Anyone who would respond, bow to, the, to God. He will save you. So, understanding God and also fearing God. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 4-3. We're not going to get into this. It would take a while, but we will read these verses. 13 through 4-3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping our, his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. The difference here between the righteous and the wicked are those who approach God with arrogance and those who approach God with fear. As we said earlier, the... It seems that the people, the Israelites and Malachi, instead of approaching God with humble questioning about, God, what are you doing? Are you going to fulfill your promises to us? Instead, they've approached him with arrogance and they've even been disobedient, completely rebellious to God. So the difference between the righteous and the wicked, those who are saved by him and those who are punished, is those who fear him. You see, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Beginning of wisdom. Are there any of you in here who might be asking questions of the Lord? We talked about this heavily in Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a man who questioned God, who who did it humbly, honestly. Really wanting to hear from the Lord. If there are any of you who are questioning in here, are you doing it defiantly? Those are the ones who do not know the Lord and who will be punished. But if you go to the Lord with a humble spirit... He desires to hear from you, to hear your questions, and he wants to love you and comfort you in them. So, in the conclusion, the last verses. Verses 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I cannot emphasize to you enough the importance that these verses are the last verses that would be heard by the people of God from the prophets for 400 years. Nearly 400 years. This is the last, these are the last verses of the Old Testament before we get to the New Testament. And so these are the reminders that God is giving to his people. Remember the law of Moses, that the statutes and rules that I commanded him and Horeb for all Israel. Remember, walk by this. But then the other reminder: behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He's telling them, this is what you can expect. This is what the day is gonna look like. I want you to know, I want you to be aware so that you don't miss it when it comes I'm going to send someone he will be like Elijah the prophet and he will tell of my he will prepare of my coming so what is the message to God's people before they will not hear anymore remember the law of Moses obey and wait Wait for Elijah. There is at least four times that John the Baptist is mentioned in this way concer- concerning Elijah. It's in Matthew 11.10, Mark 1, 1.2, Luke 7.27. These are all in your notes. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is John the Baptist, Luke 176. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will both go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Don't miss this. God has given us evidence. This isn't a blind faith. He's telling his people, this is what's going to happen when I, before I come and we see it in the gospels. This one came and he prepared the way. He prepared the way for the king. As we close, I want to close with this question again. Why are the minor prophets important? Because they tell us that Christ has been and always will be the hope of God's people. In Joel 2.32, in Acts 2.21, in Romans 10.13, we hear this verse. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But this began with Joel years before. In Micah, God is presented as the the savior of social outcasts, the afflicted and the humble. In Jesus, we have one coming and saying, I came to redeem I came to redeem the poor. I came to release the oppressed. In Nahum, we see that God is a refuge for his people. He wants to protect and he wants to comfort. In Jesus, we're protected from the judgment of our sins by the shedding of his blood. And through his presence, we're always comforted in the Holy Spirit. Zephaniah, we learn God will completely wipe away the sins of his people so they will no longer have to feel shame. And through Jesus, we see the nature of God in the prodigal son. The son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Don't you know that this is what Christ will do for you? In the midst of your sin and your shame, he says, I clothe you with my righteousness so that when I look on you, I don't see dirtiness, but I see beauty. I see my son, Jesus. There's no reason to feel shame anymore for any of your sin. He's clothed you in pure beauty and righteousness. Zechariah, God will send one figure who will be both priest going to God for us and king. He will lead us. In Jesus we have the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He was designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is Hebrews Jesus is our high priest and he is our king. He has borne our sin and all our iniquities and he cleanses us. Malachi, he concludes the Old Testament with challenging the people to wait. Be faithful and wait. In Jesus, we have the fulfillment of all our waiting. All our waiting, he comes to us in a babe. But the book of Revelation ends with God's people waiting for Christ to return again. You see, Christ has come. He has come. He has done what the minor prophets were longing for God's servant to do. All sins would be forgiven. He died and he went and we are waiting anxiously for him to come again. I've challenged you before. Do you meditate on his promises? You see, growing in Christ is not a matter of just hearing a sermon. It's not a matter of just going to Sunday school. It's a matter of meditating on his promises. That everything he said he would ever do for you, he has done for you in Christ Jesus. He is your comfort. He is your peace always. He is your security. And he is present. He is Emmanuel. He is with us. We're going to have a time just to sing and to pray, whatever you need to do. The invitation is always a time in which you can do whatever you need to do. But I do want to allow, if there's anyone who here who has not surrendered to Christ, you've never said, I will I will follow you. I pray that you'll do that, and I want to give you a moment to do that. And so during the song, I'll stand up here. Mr. Al is here. If you'll just... Stand up here, Mr. Allen, I think Dr. David, if you'll stand here. And we just want to give a couple of minutes, but if you'd just like to pray.